because Kevin McCarthy is an empty vessel. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup is Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, it's great to see you, as always. Do you care uh, to tell folks where you're hailing from today? Happy New Year from my mom's walk-in closet in Phoenix, Arizona. (laughs) Happy New Year. Great to be with you all. Also returning to the roundup is Katie Hill. Katie is a former congresswoman who represented California's 25th congressional district. She's also the author of the book, She Will Rise, and she's the founder of Her Time, a political action committee which provides support and mentorship to women running for office. And she advocates for legislation that disproportionately impacts young women. Katie, good morning to you. Happy New Year. How you doing? Good morning. I'm great, except for last night, my one-year-old did not really sleep. So pardon any, you know, brain slowness. (laughs) (laughs) Happy New Year to you and to my dear friend, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC. Mike Madrid, good to see you again. Yeah, great to be with you guys. This is a good group and we've got a great Great topic for discussion. And Happy New Year to everybody, by the way. Do we ever on this week's Roundup? We still don't have a Speaker of the House. So we are going to discuss Kevin McCarthy's battle to win a majority, what it signals for the next two years in Congress, and what it says about the power struggles within the Republican Party. Then we're going to discuss the New York Times' profile of New York Republican Elise Stefanik, how she went from Paul Ryan's protege to his biggest political disappointment and what her future might look like as Trump's star fades. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss the George Santos scandal and why these lies should have been exposed during the campaign and one congressman's proposal to punish politicians who lie about their employment and educational history. If you want to pull up a chair and join us for that, a Politicology Plus subscription gets you the private and ad-free version of this show with additional episodes that aren't on the public version. There are two ways to get it. Option one is to sign up directly with us at politicology.com slash plus, and that gets you a link you can use to listen in any major podcast player. Option two, if you only listen in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to the Politicology show there and tap the button that says try free. We'll dig in right after this. All right. So we're recording on Thursday morning and we still don't have a Speaker of the House after now six rounds of voting. And as we've talked about before, former Republican minority leader Kevin McCarthy was nominated for Speaker by the Republican conference back in November. But at the time, 31 Republicans didn't vote for him in that meeting. And because of the Republicans' narrow majority in the House, McCarthy can only afford to lose four Republican votes if every member of the House takes part in the Speaker election. So in the first round of voting, McCarthy had 19 defectors. That number has now grown to 22. Uh, According to reporting from the New York Times, the dissidents have pressed for the following. A balanced federal budget, one that wouldn't permit deficit spending, uh, rules to make it easier for lawmakers to eliminate funding for federal offices and fire government workers, 
Uh, they want it to be harder to secure earmarks that direct federal money to individual projects. They want to spend more money on fortifying the border with Mexico. Uh, they want to dismantle the IRS and replace federal income tax with a consumption tax. Uh, they've also pushed to overhaul the way the House operates to give rank-and-file members greater influence over what legislation is considered and ultimately makes it to the floor. Now, on this point, members of the Republican conference have complained about the top-down structure in the House that has really been the status quo since Newt Gingras took over as Speaker in the mid-90s. And this was on display last month when the $1.7 trillion federal budget was hashed out by the House and Senate leadership. Uh, and members had to vote in the final days of work before Christmas without really being able to scrutinize the details. So we knew going into Tuesday that McCarthy wasn't going to win on the first ballot. There was reporting that he could lose up to 20 Republican votes. So before we dig into uh, the demands of the dissidents, which I was very, uh, very surprised to see because a lot of that has not been um, covered by, uh, by a lot of the mainstream press, uh, so I want to come back to that. But first, what were all of your reactions to him starting at the upper end of that estimate? And maybe, Mike, we should uh, start with you. I think the most uh, damaging thing for, for Kevin, and, and he knew he knew he didn't have the votes. Everybody knew that he didn't have the votes. But the real number I was looking at it ha- was how many votes Biggs was going to get, because those are true never Kevin votes. Like those are not going to move. The first vote on the first ballot, there were 19 votes opposed. And as you mentioned, uh, very astutely and correctly, that number has grown over the five you know, votes that have come afterwards. Sorry to be laughing. Uh, it, it, you know, by the sixth vote, that number has grown to 21, 22. You would expect uh, it to moving, go the other way. Yeah, he's moving in the wrong direction, which is clearly a, a bad sign. But to, to me, the vote for Biggs was really that hardcore vote. That was that was a demonstration that those those are the number of votes that will are never going to break his way. At ten is a long way from four, by the way. These sounds like it's, it sounds like it's close, but when you're talking about a floor drill like this, this that's a very long way. When you push out to 19, 20, 21 votes, um, the, the, it's not only breaking a long way. There's a lot more that he would have to give in order to get those numbers into a range within striking distance. There's just not that much more that he can give. One at this point, but two. Most importantly, even if he brought in all those all those other fifteen votes, he's still five shy of 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 the, of the Gates and Boberts, who will never ever ever vote for him. And that's not just a personality thing with Kevin, although that's a big part of it. It's really a demonstration of the of the rift, the atomization of the coalitions within the Republican Party, um, and and how they're just no longer tenable. They're just they're just not, and and we're beginning to to witness that devolvement. This is not just a particular circus show in the GOP conference, although although it is. Um, this is going to get worse. Um, it was on a show yesterday where people were saying, you know, are people going to remember this come election time? My answer is no, because if you think this is bad, you, I mean, wait till the next 18 months with, this, with what we're going to see. Like, it's going to get crazy town is just starting. Like, this is the opening act, right, of a, of a, of a really absurd vaudeville show that we're going to have to unfortunately be witness to as a country. So, you know, I, I think it's important for, for listeners to also understand that each one of these votes takes on a political dynamic of its own. The, the last th- three, four, five of these was really testing the waters. The reason why McCarthy was putting them up, he's known he didn't have the votes in any of these, but they're testing to see where the movement's going to be. And the fact that that vote is shifting to other members tells us there's no plan B. 
There's no heir apparent that can kind of stand up. There's no Jordan or Scalise who's going to go to Kevin and say, throw it to me and I'll take the speakership and we'll get on the business of the country. That's not happening right now. And it also tells you again that it's moving in the wrong direction at this point. And I just don't see with Trump weighing in, with Pence weighing in, with Hannity weighing in, that it's going to move uh, votes uh, towards towards Kevin. I think it's just a matter of how much he wants to humiliate himself in the process. Katie, I want you're nodding along there. I want to hear your thoughts as you know you've been in Congress uh, and how you're reacting to this happening. Not not just one or two or three ballots or four or five. We're now on the sixth balloting, and one of the consequences here is that new members can't be seated. Like nothing can happen in the House until until this is resolved. Um, and I wonder, you know, what your read of the Democrats' response to this is and has been. Uh, especially since Hakeem Jeffries, newly elected um, uh, leader of the Democrats in the House, has said, it's not, you know, basically, I'm not going to help them out of their dysfunction. Uh, Biden says, it's not my problem. It's embarrassing. Um, yeah. How, how are you reading this? I mean, are you just like every other Democrat on Twitter I've seen just cracking wine bottles left and right? And oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> celebrate, <laughs> I, celebration. I tweeted, I tweeted that, you know, I, I frankly can't be happier about Kevin McCarthy being humiliated. He was my neighbor um, in in my district, so he was just north. We we bordered. Uh, so I have no I have no love for him. <laughs> I know I know Mike, you were um, you were friends, but it's yeah, that's not that's not my stance. But um, anyway, I think you know I I I had a feeling that the numbers were going to be really bad for him because um, that Freedom Caucus and uh, some of those hardliners. They, their whole goal, and Chip Roy has been doing this, you know, since he, since he got in there, their whole goal is to like throw, you know, uh, blockages and, uh, and to stop Congress from functioning um, the way that it's supposed to, or the way that it has for a long time. And I think, you know, there are some fair points, right? That the top down uh, approach is, is, you know, not always the best for, um, for anybody. Uh, and I think that the, um, you know, particularly the the fact that you don't see a huge spending bill until the very last second and you have to vote on it. Um, those that's that's not a good way of doing business. And it's become the norm um, for quite some time. So, I, I you know, I do I do get that. Uh, but there there isn't a I, I don't think that there's a genuine desire for Congress to to work because I think that they don't believe in in government in the same way that, you know, that we do. Um, and I don't, I don't know who all is, is included in that collective we, but, um, the majority of people do want government to function. And, American and people I, would like right, government yeah. to function, <laughs> presumably. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think, I think that I don't see, I don't see how he gets out of this. I, I think, you know, remember the, the, the motion to vacate of one member being able to motion to vacate the speakership at any time, like that could take that. I mean, that could just be the entire, uh, you know, order of business, right? Like that could happen a million times that could, yeah, it's just, it's, it's ugly. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think we need to prepare for a shutdown. Um, I think that that's the entire goal and, uh, and thank God the, um, you know, they, they did work out a, a way to keep the government open through September, but what happens after September is anybody's, anybody's guess. Lucy, over to you for your reaction. And then I have a, and then I have a more uh, philosophical question for you after this. 
It's certainly hilarious, and it's been a week of hilarity. And if people have not watched the clips, especially of Marjorie Taylor Greene kind of coming to to grips with her new normal, then you absolutely have to. And for fellow millennials, she's sort of having her own Mean Girls Gretchen Wiener moment where she's spilling (laughs) all the tea about... I mean, there are these incredible clips of Marjorie Taylor Greene where she's like, you know what? She's like, and I find out. My supposed friends in the Freedom Caucus are in meetings and they're not getting anything from me. And I don't even have committee assignments. And I could be the one doing that, but I'm not doing that. And she's just like erupting in the halls and people are walking by and patting her. It is, it's absolutely so worth it. You have to watch MTG. Um, but it shows the fracturing in this faction that is the Freedom Caucus. It's almost like when you don't stand for anything except extremism and um kind of insanity performance and polemicism yeah. <laughs> that your 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 group falls apart faster and you know you can see as Marjorie Taylor Greene starts sort of naming names of of which of her fellow Freedom Caucus members are um not actually as conservative as they'd like you to believe like she's like Scott Perry well he voted in favor of gay marriage and that's not what the base wants Matt Gates <laughs> voted with Paul Ryan more than anyone else Chip Roy voted against certifi- voted in favor of certification that's not what the base wants Matt Gates over two million dollars from Kevin McCarthy Lauren Boebert under two million dollars Kevin McCarthy like it just goes <laughs> on and on and on and it shows actually how disloyal these people are yeah. to each other and the contrast between Republicans right now and Democrats is insane. I think I think about this in two ways. One is just the political realities, which is that Democrats have absolutely no incentive to help Republicans in this way. You talk about you you will see media coverage pop up of say Don Bacon, the Republican congressman from Nebraska who's part of the Problem Solvers Caucus saying that he is going to go work with moderate Democrats to elect a, an agreeable speaker. What incentives do Democrats have to do that? They have zero incentive to do that because Republicans have already made clear that they are going to make this session of Congress Benghazi on steroids, right? And when we mm-hmm. looked at the the results of November, one of the things that that we were all saying is, in a way, first of all, much less bad than we thought, (laughs) but also in in a way, not a bad outcome in the short term for Democrats in that Republicans are going to show themselves who they are to the American people. And it puts Democrats in a much better position ahead of 2024. This is a preview of Republicans showing everyone who they truly are when they're in power. And it's an, an ugly dumpster fire. On the other hand, it's both hilarious, but also super sad, just like a super sad state of affairs politically, because, of course, Americans want governing. Of course, that's what they want Congress to do. And and I think a lot about why can't we have more parties? Why can't we have independence? It, look, the Republican Party is authoritarian, proto-fascist. There's no such thing as the alt-right anymore because they are all just off the off the cliff. They're insane. Don't trust them as far as you can throw them. On the other hand, even just that in this in this system, the Democratic Party cannot be healthy in a system like this because it basically means you have like the the insane people, right? And then the people who are not just like openly, blatantly anti-democratic. And so what is that party's options in this scenario? They're actually not very good. The Democrats are doing the best thing they can possibly do right now, which is saying, like, that's, you know, not my circus, not my monkeys. But that's also not that that's not good for getting anything done. That does not create a government that is 
responsive. So, you know, maybe that's a little bit of a philosophical take for you, but it's 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 a really a sad week in American politics, too. Yeah, it's a very sad thing to watch. Uh, I mean, I, I, once you once you get past the sort of inside baseball, wow, this is really bad for Kevin kind of thing. Like, it's not a good look for America. Uh, so here's the thing that I wanted to drill into because, uh, you know, in preparing for the show uh, was the first time I really looked at what these defectors wanted. Um, and at least some of it I had some sympathy for. But most specifically, it was this you know, the the top-down way that Congress has functioned, uh, especially under Nancy Pelosi, and we can talk about how effective she was as a leader, uh, but really that model, that style of uh, especially significant legislation getting worked out ahead of time uh, and then presented to the rank-and-file members to basically vote up or down on, as a, you know, the, as Jonah, Hel- Jonah, Jonah Goldberg put it in the dispatch, it's a fait accompli by the time it gets to the rank-and-file members, there was a lot of frustration with that style. Now, I am young enough to not know any other model for Congress to be functioning. Uh, and so I wonder, like, how, whether that sparked any kind of sympathy from you, um, what you made of Jonah's piece, especially sort of given his advocacy for a weaker speaker making for a stronger house. Um, and how how you see that potentially playing out. Now, as Katie mentioned, you you sort of are granting the point that it's sincere in the first place and that they actually do want more participation, more functioning in government. So let's just let's just assume for the sake of this argument that uh, that it is sincere and it's not performative, at least that part of it. Um, what what how, what do you make of that kind of push to transform the way the house works? Uh, and, and Lucy, I want to start with you in particular. Um, and then Mike, I'm really interested if you can take us all the way back to, you know, the, the dinosaur ages of, of, um, Newt Gingrich and, and prior. Wow. Senior member of this panel. <laughs> uh, Mike's only 10 years older than me. Uh, Lucy. Yeah. I remember hearing a quote years ago, and it was a quote from Larry King about Jar Arpaio, who was the infamous sheriff of Maricopa County, um, who, who maybe if you trace back is like an, an was an, an early uh, move to Arizona becoming purple. Just horrible guy. The guy, you know, if you aren't familiar with this lore, he was like the guy who was had tent city. He was, you know, cruel and unusual um, treatment of of inmates. Just awful, awful evil, evil man. Uh, And Larry King said about Joe Arpaio, but this quote has always stuck with me because it applies to so many political actors. He said, you know, the thing about a villain is that when he wakes up in the, in the, and looks in the mirror every day, he doesn't see a villain, right? You know, villains don't look in the mirror and think I'm a bad guy. (laughs) Villains look in the, in the mirror and think, I'm on a mission, right? Like I'm a warrior. And so, and, and part of how they do that is that of course there are kernels of truth to, uh, to problems that are being flagged by people like Matt Gates. Of course, some of the things that they are saying is grounded in, in a, an idea or a notion that could be legitimate. If that's the problem with these kinds of conflicts, right? That, that of, of course there's some kernel. That's part of what makes this so, 
problematic, right? Because because our dialogue is so eroded and and that that it means that we don't we don't operate in a in a form of interaction with each other where we come to the table and say, you know, you're right about that, right? We're in this very zero-sum discourse all the time. But I don't think that the fact that there may be elements of what Matt Gates or anyone else, and as I remember, I'm remembering that Katie actually knows Gates very well <laughs> from oh, our last right. I don't know about very that, well, right. but yeah, okay. I don't know. mean like I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I. I mean, she probably has interesting insights into into yeah. his particular psychosis. That that you know of the problem is essentially that yes, there are there are always kernels of true feelings for all of these people. There were kernels of true feelings for the Tea Party or for MAGA, and you know across the spectrum. But that doesn't mean that the ends just that the ends justify the means. Kevin McCarthy will be a weak speaker no matter what, because Kevin, if he is speaker, because Kevin McCarthy is an empty vessel and a lot of politicians are empty vessels. And Kevin McCarthy is more of an empty vessel than usual. Uh, But but and that's part of why this fight is is happening. Right. Because he's a, a politician who is more than most just unbelievably unbelievably focused on his own power and his own influence. And he's wherever the wind blows, right? He was against the Tea Party. Then he was a Tea Party hero. He was not hot on Trump. Then he was hot on Trump. Then he was off of him. Then he's back on of him. So that's the the context that we find ourselves in. Mike, tell I, I want to know if this sparked any um if if that if that call in particular sparked any sympathy from you for uh, for how Congress functions, um, because it, 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 it seems, it seems fairly reasonable to me for rank and file members to want to participate more in the actual legislating process, whether, whether you believe that these, that this faction in particular does, it seems like it would be a healthy thing if the house did move in that direction. Yeah, I think we we kind of always have that that idyllic notion that that would be the case. So um, a, a couple things. First is I I just I have to say as as a sideshow side story to all of yeah. this, I think it is amazing that Marjorie Taylor Greene just totally crapped out on this leadership <laughs> play and is being outmaneuvered by Lauren Boebert, who will probably have more influence with the next Republican speaker than Marjorie Taylor Greene will. I just, I love that storyline. So let me, I just need to acknowledge that. I, I do too. I mean, as Lucy was talking, I was envisioning just them as, as characters in a Mario Kart race, <laughs> racing yeah, around yeah. the track, throwing turtle shells at each other. Yeah. Yeah. She's like the <laughs> ultimate outsider who cuts a deal with the last establishment rhino, Kevin McCarthy. And now, <laughs> and now she's going to pay the price for all of this. It's hilarious. And now she's just attacking everybody around her, all of her, all of her, yeah. all of her friends. <laughs> Look, there's something, there's something inherent, I think, in the American political tradition to to, to not like or trust our politicians, right? And to at least at a thirty thousand foot level believe that there's some sort of corruption going on in the House. Sometimes there is. Historically, there's sometimes there has been. And going back to the formative times, some of the more formative years of of McCarthy's, you know, development as a politician, as a politico. It was with Gingrich in the 1994 contract with America. And we have to remember the contract with America, seven of those 10 elements were basically house reforms. They were basically, yeah. the contract with America was basically an attack on Congress. And the reason why that was happening is Democrats had controlled the Congress for 40 years up until that point. Like that's an unbelievable notion mm. for people who don't remember that time and era that the, the one party controlled the house for 40 years 
years. Like now it changes like wow. every two to four years. Yeah. This was 40 years of control. And and it, and it came on the heels of the house banking scandal, which a lot of people don't remember, but there was this checking, you know, benefit perk that members had where they could use basically a credit union for members of the house and it would float checks and through through banking maneuvers a lot of these members had overdrawn checks and and the government would just kind of cover it until things were paid it, it, oh, that, wow. that that that's kind of an exaggeration but again politicians are going to exaggerate when they're attacking but this was a big deal in 92 93 it was, it was a huge deal and everybody was looking at how many how much of their member had overdrawn their house account okay and again this sounds a little esoteric to most people but it was a very very big deal back in the day and there was this very anti-Congress sentiment. Frank Luntz comes in, develops a contract with America. Luntz and, and McCarthy are very, very close. And this is where their relationship really began. Frank Luntz is a pollster. Frank, by the way, was on the House floor the night of the first, first few votes. Oh, they're, wow. They're, yeah, they're very, very close. And so, so what happens uh, is, is, is McCarthy, I think, realizes and recognizes this is a great tactic. Is is running against the House is a great tactic, and and but it's not a new one. It's not a novel one. Um, and, and so when he starts to see other members start demanding reforms of the House, it's the easiest target, and it's one, frankly, as a politician that gives you the most credibility by saying, "I'll even attack my own institution because this is where the swamp is at. I'll be the martyr. I'll be the mm. the, the the righteous one in in this this den of thieves." And that's that's what's going on. And the, the the challenge for Kevin is he's giving everything away. There's nothing else to give away. Like he's given it all out. And if you want more, he'll give you more. What the problem he's realizing is when when Marjorie Taylor Greene comes in and demands a seat on oversight and subpoena power, and he gives it to her right away, the fact that she went in and cut her deal early and wasn't able to deliver anything makes the situation worse for worse for both of them. Now she's screwed and he's screwed because he's not any closer on the vote count. He got one vote, hers. She brings nobody. And that's the problem with all of these members that don't want to vote for him is I'll give you whatever you want, but they're, they're not delivering anybody else because there's no philosophy of governance. There's no horse trading <laughs> to be done. Say what you yeah. will about the Democrats and the difference between an AOC and the squad and more moderate members. There's at least a philosophy of governance that is underpinning the Democratic Party so you can negotiate. Nancy Pelosi could maneuver with that and say like, okay, we'll give you this, we'll give you that, let's do a deal. When there is no philosophy underlining nationalists and Trumpists and establishment mm -hmm. Republicans and, oh, the Freedom Caucus, which is the majority, there is literally nothing you can do except for buy one member off at a time. And after you give everything out and there's still 20 members that want something, you got nothing to play with. Yeah. After you've completely yeah. weakened your speakership and you still aren't getting closer in the vote count – you're screwed. And that's why I think the challenge is Kevin isn't just weakening the speakership for himself. He's, he's weakening it dramatically for any Republican speaker that is yeah. going to come after him. I think we probably have three speaker, three Republican speakers between now and the 2024 elections. Okay. I, I think there's a very real chance that the next, the, whoever the Republican speaker is going to be, I don't think it's going to be Kevin. I think it's probably going to be a backbencher. We have really not, that isn't yeah. in the discussion right now because that's the yeah. only way you're going to get to a compromise is, yeah. is, is all of these people that are corrupt in the swamp and the Kevin McCarthy machine and who's complicit in the leadership of which faction aren't going to be palatable to anybody else. There will probably just be exhaustion in the conference and say, oh, he's a good guy. 
or she's a good person. Let's let's put him up. Or is Don? Oh, what's his name? Donald's if Byron Donald's is finding out, let's put the black he's what, guy. A sophomore, up. right? Yeah. Like he's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's right? yeah. just such a Republican <laughs> thing to do, right? It's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Put him up. And he's put, like, put okay, him up. I'll be speaker. Right? I can do this because put, they all put me believe. In, coach. They all believe they can do it. Yeah, put me in. I'll make the catch. I can make that throw, right? <laughs> they all believe that they can do it. And that's like I think and, 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 and somebody like that is completely unqualified to manage. A caucus under healthy circumstances, but in dysfunctional circumstances, that's what the likely next speaker is going to be facing. And I think the unruliness of what's happening probably leads to a series of of complete utter inability to manage the conference. And I think it will bumble its way into, which is why Jordan doesn't want this, by the way. If Jordan wanted the speakership, he'd be speaker right now. He could have got it on the fourth vote. He doesn't want it because he knows, he knows, he knows it's going to be shit. Anybody, who, anybody who's got any sense realizes they can get whatever they want without having the nightmare of babysitting, you know, 218, you know, nutbags. Like, they, they, <laughs> yeah. they get it. If you're smart enough to be a speaker, you don't want it. Yeah. Katie, I want you to jump in here and talk about what the process look. I want to go back to this, like, what if we change the way the house functions idea? Uh, again, setting aside whether or not the, 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 the clowns who are currently clamoring for this are, are sincere, because even if they aren't, I actually think it's an interesting idea. And I want to know uh, what, first of all, can you talk about what the process looked like while you were in Congress? And then how uh, shaking things up could change the gridlock potentially if more legislation came out of committees instead of from leadership um, and and whether or not you you agree with that approach. Yeah, so I think a couple of things. First, you know, I I do think that there's validity to it, right? Like I think that that's a, a, a this, this top-down, you know, style is um, it's not healthy for democracy, but it also in many ways comes from our inability to uh, to actually get things done in a timely manner, right? Like those those big bills, the ones that do come down in the most uh, top down way, that's because there's like literally no way to get it to to happen in time to keep the government open or to fund, you know, the arms, you know, armed services or or um, or yeah, raise the debts ceiling. Like those are all negotiations that have to happen because you have to have the Senate agree to it. You have to have the House agree to it. And, and in, you know, in like, at least under Nancy Pelosi, she's, she is the one who is able to bring the caucus together and to actually get the whole group of diverse voices to, um, to be, you know, uh, on the same page and to actually make something happen. Right. Like the, the, so I do think that it's a little bit of a um, a misconception that there was no participation from rank and file members because you we, we knew what was right. Like once you're there for a little bit and I, I wasn't there for that long altogether. So, I, you know, it doesn't take you that long to kind of figure out, all right if I need something or, you know, if I have strong feelings about this, like this is the group that I can bring to, um, you know, to, to make some demands and to make sure that those demands are included in whatever happens. Uh, you know, we've seen that with immigration, with the, um, the Hispanic caucus, you know, making certain demands. We've seen it with, um, with the black caucus, making certain demands, progressives, et cetera, et cetera. So like these different groups do have power and um and the chairs of the committees were uh she, you know she met with them constantly and and I do think that there was um 
her her style of leadership was very um, coalition building and uh, and getting everybody's buy in. That doesn't mean that it worked 100% of the time. It certainly didn't, uh, or at least it didn't work 100% with all members. Uh, but I do think that you know she was part of her effectiveness. It wasn't just because she forced things through. It was because she she got the buy in that was necessary to do so. And by the way, she did not, she was never, at least in, in what I've seen, um, she wasn't very forceful in terms of like, well, you're not going to get, if you don't vote this way, you're not going to get committee assignments or whatever. I think she was actually pretty hands off on, on some of the tactics that I thought in some cases she should have been using, um, to, you know, to push things more. So I don't know. I, I, I think that there's a, um, there's a value in slowing things down, uh, if there's an, an actual ability to do it. Right. So there's yeah. genuine engagement. Yeah. With right. And yeah. so if you just have it stop by a single member, like th- you're always going to have somebody who's yeah. unhappy with it. Right. If you're able to, yeah. s- to stop the entire, all the gears from moving forward, uh, all the time, then you're never going to get anything done. And, and I really, I, I think Mike, you're absolutely right that we're going to probably see several speakers in this, in this time, because they're going to, they're going to do this motion to vacate. Right. And, and I don't know, it's, I, it's going to be chaos. It's really, that's really what I I, see. I have one more, I have one more, uh, just thread to pull on here, Lucy, which is the, you know, the degree to which Trump's sway over the freedom caucus wing, you know, uh, well, how strong it is in the first place, because we now know like he's been trying to whip votes to, he's been trying to get Kevin elected and it's not working, and the numbers going the opposite direction. And I wonder uh, what you think this says about the the sort of perennial question that we keep asking, which is, what is his influence over the party going to be? What is it? And uh, and this um, and what this episode says about that. I'm curious about your thoughts, and and Mike, if you want to weigh in. I don't know that this episode in particular says much about Trump's influence over the party, because one of the things that all of the players in this know is that Trump also hates losers. So if Kevin McCarthy becomes a loser, he will jettison Kevin McCarthy, right? Kevin McCarthy is an empty vessel, but so is Donald Trump. And they're both untrustworthy. Neither are loyal. And so I don't think that there's a big concern among, say, Freedom Caucus members who feel like they still need some of the um, the gunpowder of the Trump brand that that they will find themselves, you know, in the crosshairs of Trump because of doing this. Trump is not going to fall on his sword or kind of like die on the hill of Ken, Kevin McCarthy. Um, so I, I tend to think that this episode itself doesn't say much about no. Trump's influence writ large. Okay. Mike? Yeah, I, take. I, no, I would look, I would tend to agree. I mean, I think what was really, what has been interesting to me and nobody's really written or talked about it too much is the fact that the endorsement that Trump gave was really very bland and quite milquetoast. Yes. It was kind of like, yeah, I mean, Kevin's a good guy. He didn't say he'd be a good speaker. He's like, he's a good guy. Right. And he's clearly not going in there and saying like, I'll primary, you know, anybody who doesn't vote for him or I'm going to back, you know, these people, these candidates, and this is, this is MAGA. And this is, you know, these other people are old crows or whatever attacks he's going to make on whoever it's going to be. Uh, and then li- literally by the third vote, his spokesperson was, was walking even that back and saying like, it's up to the conference, like whatever they want to do is where mm-hmm. they want to go. So Trump's really kind of left Kevin McCarthy out there, which of course is just poetry. I, I, you love to see it, right? Because 
he's out there squirming and being humiliated. He went and, you know, fell on his sword for this guy, lied after he was on the House floor making a speech on January 6th. He's at Mar-a-Lago bending the knee 48 hours later. And, of course, what does it get in return? You get what you get in return for Trump, which is absolutely nothing. You get abandonment. And that's what he kind of deserves. And there's this kind of, I think, justice in watching him humiliate himself on the floor over and over and over again because that's how he's going to be remembered. You know, the, the, the two worst kept secrets in California politics of my generation were Alex Padilla wants to be a U.S. senator and <laughs> Kevin McCarthy wants to be the Speaker of the House. And and to watch Alex get it, right, on January 6th, the same, <laughs> the same day, right? He gets sworn in as a full-time elected official. And then and then to see Kevin, like, coming this close to to, to that ambition and, and following Can't short, even swear, his, swear in his own new members. Can't even swear in his own new members is, is, uh, is, is just – it's just it, – he deserves it. And I'm saying that as somebody who has known him for 30 years. And um, – it's, it's it's tough to watch, but it's also kind of just desserts. It's just it's just he, he deserves it. If anybody fucking deserves it, it, it's it's him at this moment. So Kevin McCarthy noticed on an Air Force One trip with Donald Trump that Donald Trump only likes the red and pink Starbursts. So Kevin McCarthy went out and bought a bag of Starbursts and he gave oh the bag of Starbursts to the his aide and he said, sort out the colors so that I can give oh POTUS just the red and pink ones. And then he went. This is a to true story. Trump. Yes, it's in. You can oh read about God. it. It's been it's, oh it's this is I'm this is not lore. This is what's like written about. He went to Trump and he said he presented him with a jar of pink and red Starbursts that his aides had sort of lovingly sorted. And that is one piece of Kevin McCarthy. The second aspect of this story is that by the way, you can just buy a bag of pink and red Starbursts. <laughs> and to me, that's the the real the real metaphor in this for Kevin McCarthy. And what he could have done and he didn't, if Kevin McCarthy had had a little bit of a backbone, I actually do believe after January 6th, I think that he would have found some moderate Democrats, blue dog Democrats, Democrats who are in districts that are maybe like Trump districts with Democratic members. I think he actually could have found Democrats who would say, you know what, country before party, I know that it's probably better for the Democratic Party on the whole if I let you go up and smoke, but I'm not going to because you seem like a person who is an honest broker. Then he's not. He's Mm -mm. Starburst guy. Starburst guy. (laughs) I just want you to know, Lucy, I would pick out the pink and red Starburst for you. Just (laughs) Just buy the bag, Ron. She's going to go on record. (laughs) I'm more of an orange and pink person. I don't know if you can buy a bag. I don't know. I'm actually not sure. That's a good question. I'm not sure. On Saturday, the New York Times published a lengthy profile of Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. Early in her career, Stefanik branded herself as a model, moderate, millennial. Her former mentor, Paul Ryan, described her as, quote, the future of hopeful, aspirational politics in America, end quote, to Time magazine. Stefanik had previously called Trump a whack job in messages with a former friend, After Mitt Romney lost the 2012 presidential election, Stefanik was hired by the Republican National Committee task force that wrote the autopsy uh, and was a strong supporter of comprehensive immigration reform and of appealing to a more diverse electorate. These were 
recommendations of the postmortem autopsy. Uh, in 2018, she was criticized by Fox hosts for not supporting Trump enough, while her friends criticized her for not opposing him more forcefully. Since then, Stefanik has undergone a political transformation at breakneck speed. In a few years, she went from moderate millennial to staunch Trump apologist and embraced some of the conspiracy theories that rile up the MAGA base, including amplifying debunked allegations of dead voters casting ballots in Atlanta. So the move has catapulted Stefanik from the backbench to the third ranking member of the House Republicans. She's become one of the primary examples of a member of the old Republican establishment being willing to be absorbed into the MAGA wing of the party uh, by running toward Trump. But now, in the wake of the 2022 midterms and Trump's drag on the Republican ticket, some Republican politicians um, and voters are questioning their alliance with Trump, we now know. So toward the end of the piece, the Times reported that for much of the spring and summer, Stefanik was plotting a potential push to become the Republican whip. Now, that's the number two position in the Republican conference, for those of you uh, keeping track at home. But as the field became more crowded, she found herself without a clear lane to a win. Moderates no longer saw her as one of their own, and the right wing was looking for somebody who is a more consistent conservative. And while she keeps coming up in conversations about a potential 2024 uh, running mate for Trump, two people in Trump's inner circle told the Times that these are uh, clumsy plants by her own team. <laughs> so, uh, Lucy, I want you to kick this one off because we had a long conversation about Elise uh, on the podcast over a year ago, I think, um, because of your history uh, with her. And, and I wonder what you make of her move over the last couple of years, if you want to reprise that a bit. I think that one of the most interesting revelations about Elise Stefanik is that during 2020, she was back channeling to the Buttigieg campaign saying, um, do you think that that if he wins, he'd be open to giving me a uh, a, a cabinet post? So I, th I think that that shows how um, how strong or not strong her convictions are when it comes to um, public policy. I actually think that that tends to be the real Elise Stefanik. I, I think that she is a, uh, her, her natural impulse is to be a consensus builder um, down the middle, um, you know, kind of traditional conservative, the kind of person that people would, people like, the Freedom Caucus types would have called a squish. Uh, but I think that she has this overriding um, piece of her that is just incredible, incredible ambition. And she was a, we we are now in an era where we've seen a lot of young people get elected to Congress, but she was one of the very first, she was, very yeah. young person to be elected to Congress. And when you look at her time between being a young person coming up, going through college, uh, you know, her, she, she was doing everything right for a different time. <laughs> she yeah. was doing everything right for being a Republican member of Congress in like the late nineties, <laughs> early two thousands. Yeah. And so I think that, uh, you see in a person like Elise Stefanik and she's not the only one, but you see this, this kind of inner conflict happening of the, uh, ambition, uh, but then the the political realities and those things just not matching up. Katie, what did you make of the piece and uh, and Elisa's transformation in general? I think Lucy hits it right on the 
right on the head, which is she she was she was doing all the right things for a different time, and what that says for the time that we're in now. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, f- first of all, I mean, she's a shapeshifter, right? She's somebody who, in the same way Kevin McCarthy is, she'll do whatever it takes, clearly, to um, you know to ensure her own rise. But when you sell your soul, you can only get so far. And I think that's the the lesson learned from this is that people people don't buy it, right? I kept for Kevin, um, for you know, for Elise, like those the there's you're you can't convince people that you're a a certain way uh if you're if it's clear that you're telling people whatever they want to hear um and that you don't actually believe in things. And and I think you know, it's it's very hard to tell what what either of them really believes. You know, um, I think that for for Elise, I was on armed services with her, and she. Um, I think at that point, so this would have been we were voting on the NDAA in 2019, um, the defense authorization bill, and she was one of the very few defectors um, that kind of sided with Democrats on a couple of issues, and one of them I think was on uh, not you know, taking from defense spending to build the the border wall. Um, so, you know, that was kind of the, I would say the end of her time, you know, uh, trying to, to stand up to any of the sort of Trumpian politics. Um, so I think that she's, she, 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 she blows with the wind. She saw, she saw an opportunity and uh, it was interesting to me to, ha- to see somebody in the article who has lost so many friends. Um, and you know, I've been through a lot, right? Like I've been, I, I have, I have, and I, I would say that, you know, you, it's, it's easy to lose the people who, who jumped onto your, your bandwagon late. Right. But it's hard to lose your real friends. You have to really do something, uh, to, to, you know, to do that. And I, so it's pretty, it's pretty telling. And I don't think she's, I don't think she's going to make it very far because, um, the the winds are shifting again. And once you've gone full, you know, insurrectionist, full election denier, it's very hard to come back from that. Yeah. Mike, I'm interested in your take on this because it seems like, uh, like a case study in how, um, how, uh, (laughs) integrity will take you a lot farther than opportunism. (laughs) Yeah. Look, I I think it's, it is not unusual to see politicians change over the course of their careers, but usually it's within the spectrum of of where their party is um, is at in terms of either moderate progressive or moderate conservative, depending on which party you're at. This is really a sign that there are untenable coalitions in the Republican Party. The American right is experiencing something that we have not seen since probably the Civil War. The America First nationalists are not conservatives. They're, they're, they're not only diametrically opposed, they don't belong under the same banner. There's, they're, they're just yeah. completely different philosophies. And so I, I think um, Lucy put it really, really well, which is Stefanik was doing something right for a different age. And I, I think we're in time, and, and it's unfolding now in real time, we're coming to understand just how profound the transformation of the Republican Party is from kind of Reagan conservatism in the post-World War II era to this Trump nationalism populism, 
which don't they are not they're again they're just not compatible it's not like oh here's we let's disagree on on capital gains tax cuts rates like that's not what's happening Mm -hmm. this is diametrically opposed visions of the world let alone the country and like the fight in ukraine is a perfect example of this like it's there's isolationism protectionism nativism and then there's the old kind of cold warrior republicans that are like this is russia what are you talking about right and that that's still i think this is the most telling thing too about the republican conference that's the only real split that exists anymore like these people have compromised the stefanics and the mccarthy's have compromised on everything and except for that, right? There's still this split on Russia at the moment. We'll see what happens yeah. when you you know funding for Ukraine comes up again in this next Congress. But that's just how profound this transformation has been, and it's not you can't you can't in, integrity does not allow you to move and be both of those people because they're they're diametrically opposed. And that's what Stefanik is trying to do is thread this needle by saying, I literally believe in nothing. And what happens in that instance is the Trumpers never, don't trust you because that's not, you're not of them. That's right. heaven's problem. Right. And then the, the, the quote unquote moderates or the, or the classical conservatives are like, you're a sellout and you never believed in it in the first place. So you have no base. And if you have no base as a right. politician, you're done. What Katie said about friends and losing friends is interesting because that's true. But I also think there are many stories on the Republican side of lost friendships among people like Elise Stefanik. I remember, I don't know, probably in 2019, when I was first getting to know George Conway, George said to me, yeah, it's this has been kind of a hell of a time, but I have made some really incredible friends and have met some people that really mean a lot to me, right? And those are relationships that persist. And he was talking about friends he has made that are people that he shares, including other people on this podcast, but who share a value with him, right? So it's like everyone who was on the right, who came up on the right, who was on the right in 2016, when all of that was occurring for the first time, we're seeing that as everything shook out, especially between 2016 and 2020, there were just people who don't talk to you anymore, right? You know, Mike has people like that. Ron has people like that. And you actually see within kind of like the never Trump wing of the former Republican Party, very close bonds, very close bonds among those people. But the people who are remaining in the party, they don't stand for anything, as Mike says. So, of course, they don't have friends, right? Because Elise Stefanik isn't the only one who no longer has friends. Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't have friends. Like, apparently, she ever, though? Does, <laughs> <laughs> apparently Matt Gates doesn't either because oh, yeah, his friend sure. Marjorie Taylor Greene, whom he does a podcast with, is shanking him. Right. And next week it'll be Lauren Boebert shanking someone else. And so it's just I think that that lens of friendship and human bonds is really interesting when you sync it up with Mike's point about how this is a coalition that doesn't stand for anything. Yeah, it's not really a coalition, right? Hatred separate parties. Otherism and and extremism. Of of course they're of course they're of course they're all miserable. That's not fertile (laughs) ground for friendship. It sure is not. (laughs) Of course your friends are telling really embarrassing stories about you to the (laughs) New York Times. (laughs) Yeah. Not good. Uh, Yeah, good points. All right, gang, we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories uh, this week. Let's 
Let's lock it. Uh, what you're watching, Katie, as you're picking the uh, the uh, pink and orange starbursts <laughs> out of the bowl. What, what do you, what do you have no, your Ron, eye on? No, Ron, you have to pick pick them out for her. And <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and she's a she's a new mom. You should be sending. Yeah. We should okay. all be picking fair, out star starbursts. Picking. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, I, I'm I'm really watching to see where this is going to go for the speakership. How long it's going to take? What happens? Uh, you know, I mean, look, this could drag on for a very long time. Um, and the longer it drags on, the more likely you are to have some people who are kind of wavering. But I don't, I don't think that that necessarily wavers towards Kevin. Um, I think that that we, yeah, we we could end up with something really bizarre. Um, and and it's gonna it's gonna keep people in Congress from being able to do their jobs. Um, and I, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm watching with great fascination as I know many people are on kind of, uh, where this heads. I mean, I, I'm still, you know, I'm not really holding out hope, but it would be amazing if you have a few Republicans who are just like, oh my God, this is absolutely crazy. Like we have to, we have to actually, actually get Congress seated. And then, you know, you don't, <laughs> Hakeem doesn't need as many <laughs> to, to defect yeah. as, as, uh, as Kevin That's does. Right. So That's right. Mike, what do you got? Let me apologize in advance for this because it's just super nerdy, but it tells you kind of what I think about all day. So the passing of Pope Benedict um, <laughs> brings up uh, the politics of the Curia in a way that is just fascinating to me. Um, wow. You know, the, the, the conservatives and the moderates uh, in, the, in the College of the Cardinals, um, maybe it's just I just need constant uh, political fix to kind of find out where all the maneuvering is going. But to watch the transformation, the change of the votes, the cardinals' votes, um, this obviously doesn't affect a papal vote. This isn't a conclave, but the the loss of a conservative leader who was kind of the last, you know, true kind of conservative as far as Catholic ideologues are concerned, uh, this power vacuum that has been filled in the Curia um, really does change the dynamics of what will likely be a papal vote in the next few years. I mean, popes don't don't last too long. They're usually pretty old. There's no, like, young guns leader yeah. that, that takes over as pope, right? <laughs> so um, so anyway, I just kind of watch it. Kevin McCarthy in the College of Cardinals. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to watch kind of the shape-shifting that occurs, uh, you know, in, 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 in religion as well as it does in politics, too. It reminds us that we're all human, but reading kind of the, some of the the same changes that have happened. I mean, Francis, of course, was elected as a compromise candidate who could not be, you know, part of the leadership of either of the factions because he would have been complicit in it is not terribly unlike what may happen in the Republican conference. And I'm not trying to make comparisons between the ideologies or the belief systems of the two. It's just there are some recipes where politics kind of is practiced in a certain methodical way and a certain methodical faction. We'll see if that holds true. But for the moment, you know, it's been hundreds of years um, since a uh, living pope uh, was alive while a previous pope has passed away. And it does have ramifications in the politics of the curious. So I apologized early on before I told that story. My apologies again for being so nerdy about something as peculiar as, as Catholic cardinal politics. But there you have it. I mean, you're you're. Uh... I'm a pedestrian Catholic observer and you're just inspiring me to go watch the two popes again. It's one of my favorite. Yeah, movies. it's a great. That, so, 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 so it's very well done. Yeah. yeah. Lucy, bring it home. I am watching a different, well, it's not a race because it's resolved, but a, a different um, legislative body choose its speaker. And that is the Pennsylvania state house and the Pennsylvania state house 
was uh, had been in Republican control for more than a decade. And the stakes in Pennsylvania are even higher than in some other places. It's one of these states that, you know, becomes blue statewide, becomes blue federally, but because of gerrymandering and all the things we know and love, has continued to be a, a Republican state legislature in, in many years. So you have someone like a Democratic governor and a Republican state legislature. We can remember famously in 2020 that a lot of the things that Trump was complaining about around changes to the um, changes to balloting were, you know, well, you have your Republican colleagues in the state legislature of Pennsylvania to think. So Pennsylvania also, one other fun fact about Pennsylvania is that Pennsylvania doesn't have a secretary of state. So it's very con- like it, it it does not have a secretary of state that is elected. Excuse me. So one of the things that was at stake in the Shapiro Mastriano race was Mastriano, had he become governor, would have chosen right. the person who was going to oversee elections. And so for people like me who are just sort of obsessive compulsive about state legislative makeup. I'm seriously, I feel like I, you know, meet one person every three months who cares about as much about this as I do. Pennsylvania was super consequential. And somehow Pennsylvania managed to, to Democrats in Pennsylvania managed to take the house in November. And then a guy died And two people resigned. And so there's been this question of like, who controls the Pennsylvania House? And it's super consequential. And so this week, Republicans and Democrats in the House, in what should have been like a normal just speaker election, everyone wondered what would happen. And a Democrat who's in the House, who's I think is in a sixth or seventh term, basically pledged that he would become an independent. And basically, a deal was struck between Democrats in the Pennsylvania House and moderate Republicans to elect this guy, whose name is Mark Rossi, I think, to become the Speaker of the House. And he's committed to being a nonpartisan, independent speaker. Now, will that last? Who's to say? But it's really fascinating. And it's such an interesting contrast between something happening in a state legislature and something happening federally. And it's also interesting to me because I do think that the this moment of all politics is national is one of the worst aspects of our politics and something really, really eroding our discourse. But sometimes when actually the spotlight is not on, so maybe I shouldn't even share this as an under the radar story, but sometimes when the spotlight is not so on these legislative bodies, some Republicans remember what they're there to do, and they're able to strike some deals and do some things that are yeah. kind of innovative, maybe unusual, but definitely very good outcomes. So Pennsylvania yes. control, speak, Pennsylvania House speakership is the thing that's been capturing my imagination this week. I I am so glad you brought such a detailed readout of that because we almost chose it as our plus topic this week because it's so significant and because so much is writing on Pennsylvania. So kudos. That was perfect. Uh, And listeners, you should go read about this because it's a fascinating, fascinating story. Uh, Okay, gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to discuss the George Santos scandal, or shall I say Anthony Zabrovnik? Is that his name? Anyway, where can everybody find you on the internet? Lucy? I'm still on Twitter, hemorrhaging followers every day at (laughs) Lucy M. Caldwell. 
<laughs> yeah, but they've got to be bots, right? They've got to be bots. <laughs> Katie, where are you? I'm also still on Twitter. Um, I keep trying to to do other platforms, but I just like, it's too much to manage to do all totally. these different ones. But anyway, I'm at Katie Hill, the number four CA. Got it. Mike, where are you? I am on Mastodon. That's right. <laughs> Mike forgot. Madrid at C.im. I can't believe you beat me to Mastodon. I am an I'm innovator. Still... <laughs> I'm I'm a leader in the tech space. <laughs> Mastodon is also losing followers all the time, it turns out, unfortunately. Oh, so is we've it? all got to get onto Mastodon oh, wow. with Mike. Okay. I, I I for the moment I am still on Twitter at Ron Stesla, but I'm gonna be I'm gonna go check out Mastodon and maybe post. I'm on post Kara Swisher's thing. Yeah. yeah. I I think Same. Mastodon looked too complicated for me. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, for now, you can always email us too, by the way, Politicology. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover Politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>